people like to use the word criminal, inmate, and many of those things to, to forget that they're talking about a human. Um, so this is humanitarian crisis and our department of corrections and our pardons and paroles for, for that lack of, I mean, just as a system failure, is so focused on building new buildings that they're willing to allow other humans to be collateral damage to get there. Alrighty, boys and girls, welcome in another episode of uh, the greatest podcast that you've ever listened to, um, <laughs> and, and this is going to be our best episode ever. Um, I, I'm convinced of that. Uh, I am Josh Moon. Uh, the other person you hear laughing at me is <laughs> David Person. <laughs> no, I love, I love, I love your aspirations for us. That's that's really good. I love. Listen, that. man, go in, go in expecting greatness. Go in expecting greatness that's all it. the time. Yeah, it's yeah. uh, and by the way, the, the actual name of this thing is Alabama Politics this week. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you know, just just to throw that out there, but uh, you know, and, and you can look for that anywhere. Uh, you can find your podcast, although you've already found it. So why would you be looking? Yeah, uh, but yeah, you know, <laughs> but you got to say that, right? That's yeah, you got to say that. Yeah, you get, part get of it the stick. You got to say it. Yeah. yeah. All right, we we do have a good show. Uh, Chris England, uh, mm-hmm. executive director of the of the party, is going to be on. It's always. Is he the chairman, the executive director? No, I think what he's the he? chair. He's the he's party the chair? chair. Yeah, he's the chairman. He's so the executive Wade is the executive director. Right, yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Wade I got, is, the, got the titles mixed up. Yeah. I just know that they're in charge of things, okay? They're running so, the show. Yeah. They're running the show over at the party. And he's also a state rep, and he's uh, you know, he's got he's also the leading critic of our Department of Corrections and mm-hmm. uh, and the Board of Pardons and Paroles, which God knows we need more critics of those. Uh, those two mm-hmm. institutions. So, uh, but first, let's uh, let's start where we apparently always have to start now, and that is with COVID. Um, we are at negative ICU beds, which I didn't even know was a thing. Hmm. Uh, I didn't, you know. Uh, it, so what? Uh, what so I'm assuming that means that that there are two patients out there that need ICU beds that aren't able to get get them. Is yeah. that? Do you think that's what that means? Well, from what I was told yesterday by Eddie Burkhalter, who works for APR and who has covered all things COVID now for eighteen months, um, that means that there is a total number of ICU beds in the state, mm-hmm. and that these hospitals have exceeded that number. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that the people aren't in ICU rooms, I guess, because they have established other ICU rooms outside of their normal numbers. Uh, ah, so, uh, okay. I said, but although it could also mean that people who do need to be in ICU rooms uh, are not in them as a mm. bit. Um, mm. And so, uh, yeah, you know, the, I guess the message there is, you know, try not to get yourself into an ICU situation, better buckle up and drive slow um, yeah. and, you know, take your vitamins and, you know, maybe walk on a treadmill every now and then. Uh, mm-hmm. But, um, you know, cause, we're in a bad state here, man. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, what gets me about this is watching now all of the Republican lawmakers come out with their, Hey, y'all go get the vaccine. Listen, me and my wife have got the vaccine. So you should try it too. It's okay to get the vaccine, go out and get that vaccine, you know? And when Democrats, especially during the legislative session, begged them to do more for this, Beg them to get to to get behind vaccine efforts, mm-hmm. and instead we wasted time on banning vaccine passports, 
trying to limit the governor's uh, power to, to issue executive orders related to health emergencies. Um, we, we try, I mean, look at all we did at schools. Did They didn't do a thing to address schools. I don't think that was even brought up in the legislature, uh, in the legislator, uh, legislature, I'm <clears throat> sorry, um, this, mm-hmm. this past session. And it was not even talked about what we should do with schools and this money that come from the federal government to ensure uh, you know, school safety. We didn't even talk about what we should do there. Yet we did spend a whole lot of time on keeping transgender kids from playing sports uh, in school. And so now we're sending home hundreds, hundreds of students and teachers because of COVID and COVID contacts. And it, we didn't do anything. They have no plan. And we're going to write a story early next week uh, about this and APR. I've been working on it with, with Eddie, who I mentioned earlier, about the, the confusion among superintendents in this state, county superintendents, about what they should do with, hmm. these, with these kids. Are they supposed to quarantine them? Are they supposed to send them home directly? What do you do? The law says that they can't quarantine a kid at school. Only the Department of Public Health can do that. So what are we supposed to do with this? They, a lot of them have no idea. We're, this is like the third school year of this stuff. Well, this is, this is the crisis of leadership that you're talking about. I mean, it, it's incredible to me that, especially in a state like Alabama, where you're talking about, if I were a Republican, and let me, let me just get right to it. If I were a Republican, and I'm not, obviously, mm-hmm. but if I were, I would be scared as hell about the impact that this was having on my voting base. Because we're talking about a state that is predominantly red, a state that is that has the lowest vaccination rate, has, you know, is being disproportionately impacted. As a, I mean, if I just wanted to be crass and just see it purely through a political lens, I'd be thinking, we've got to save our voters. Mm-hmm. We've got to save our voters. And, and that's a real crass way to look at this thing, admittedly. Yes. But I'm just saying, if I were, you know, if I were Governor Ivy, I'd be thinking, we got to do something. You know, <laughs> my power just, base is dying off. Well, you know, at, at a point, what's always here, here's what I don't know. I don't know the answer to this. Let's say we get a year, year and a half down the road from this, and we have managed to put it behind us in some form or fashion. Uh, you know, no matter what that looks like, you know, we mm-hmm. we put the worst of this behind us in some way, um, and, and we start totaling up the the number of deaths and and hospitalizations and people who still have severe uh, ish health issues because of what took place during this pandemic. You know, do you think any of them are going to hold them accountable for this? You know what? I think fear is going to fear and and the and the loss of loved ones or the or the if not loss of loved ones, hopefully, at the very least, the fact that there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be dealing with the residual health uh, impact of this, you know, the decline in their health. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's going to have an impact. I think it's going to I think it's going to create an overall picture of. You know, this Republican leadership did not know what they were doing, and they did not provide, you know, the kind of life-saving leadership that was required during a pandemic. 
So yeah, yeah I think it, I think there are going to be political repercussions here. Now, is it going to be enough to put a Democrat in office, you know, statewide at the gubernatorial level or some other level? I don't know. But but I think it's going to be I think it's going to have an impact because a lot of people are being touched by this. A lot of people are afraid. And I think there if 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 the Democratic Party and again, I know this is a crass. This is the least this should be the least of our concerns, the political mm-hmm. ramifications. But, you know, this is a political podcast. So that's what we're talking about. Sure. I, I think that if the Democratic Party is smart, they will continue to ram home the reality that Republican leadership failed the people of Alabama, failed them, and that it could have been, you know, there are children and elderly and others who would be alive today or in better health today, and even economically, we would be in better shape today if there had just been some courageous leadership you know, uh, as opposed to this sort of vacillating between courage and just, you know, political weakness, really. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you're right. Um, and and I, I hope that's the case. I hope that there is some there's some fallout from this. I really do. And and it's not uh, listen, I, I'd love to see, you know, Democrats you know get back in in control of things in this state, but it's not purely from, from that standpoint. It's also from a standpoint of, I would like the Republicans to be better. Uh, you know, I would like for them to be better in serving people and caring about people. And I don't, I, you know, I, I'll be honest, man. I, I don't think a lot of them do. I think they think of themselves first and, and govern from that perspective. And I don't think it's uh, for many, many of those people uh, on the Republican side of this, I don't, I don't think that they have the best interest of people at heart in a lot of these things that they're doing. If they did, they would have gone to some of these things because they very, very easily could have done it. And Tommy Tuberville has proven this. They very easily could have gone out to these town halls. They could have gone out to talk to their people. They could have cut commercials and everything else that they wanted to do because there's plenty of money to do it from the federal yep. government. They could have gone out there and told them, don't believe this stuff that you're hearing. This vaccine is safe. This vaccine is very effective. It's going to help us get past this. You know, it's going to help restore our economy. It's going to help uh, get our kids to school safely. Uh, they could have done this from the start and been level-headed about it and been focused on it and and cut out this bullshit with the vaccine passports and your freedoms. You need to do what's best for you and trust yourself. You know, and 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 say, listen, we live in a society. And in a society, we have determined that there are rules and things that, that we got to follow for the betterment of all society. And part of that is taking care that we don't spread infectious diseases to other people that are literally killing hundreds of thousands of people. We lost right. 650,000 Americans at this point, 12,000 Alabamians. You know, I mean, what, the, what more evidence do you need of this? And that's where I think they could have done a hell of a lot more, but instead they chose this path of least resistance to mm-hmm. come in and say, uh, you know, well, you know, you do whatever you'd like to do. You know, listen, you just listen to however, however you want to do it, and that's fine. And we're not going to make you, we're not going to let businesses tell you you can't come in and spread this shit all over their business and mm-hmm. infect their employees and uh, everything else. I, it just, I, it's got to be on the backside of this when we look back. It's got to be that. People take a good look at what's happened in Alabama, Florida, Mississippi, uh, Louisiana, and compare it to Maine and, and Massachusetts and some of these other states that are that have very high vaccination rates 
and and are not having nearly the problems that we have. Well, I mean, Maine has like seven percent of their hospital uh, their ICU beds taken up by COVID patients. Seven wow. percent. Wow. You know, yeah. we got plus fifty over here. The freedom argument. This this whole idea about uh, you know the the ma- you know wearing masks or force or or you know forcing vaccinations right. you know um, this is an impingement on my 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 freedom my right to be free and make my own choices you know so if that's the case then you know why don't we just let's just you know why be arbitrary about it. Mm-hmm. Why don't we just start saying, you know what? You don't have to wear seatbelts. You know what? Mm-hmm. You can you can speed if you want all the time. We're going to stop mm-hmm. policing speeding on the highway. Drunk you know? driving. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. Drunk driving. You know, just actually just, you know what? Just do whatever the hell you want. You mm-hmm. know, this is America. You got the right to choose. Choose whatever you want to do. And uh, God bless you. Hope it works out. You know, yeah. I mean, it's really sort of ridiculous. Um, you know, I, I think we I, I think we want to strike a balance between we definitely want to honor people's right to choose without question, but we also have to be logical and concede the reality that that there are, as you alluded to, collective choices that we have arrived at because of the overall impact on society. Yeah. That's why we have speed limits. It's why seat belts are now mandated. You know, so this idea that 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 this one thing, you know, mm-hmm. and by the way, we're talking about people who in all likelihood, you know, probably 99% of these people who are complaining about vaccines and masks and all that, they had their children vaccinated. Yeah. Their children yeah. have already been vaccinated. So, you know, it's, you know, we got to find a balance here. And, yeah. and, and at the very least, we need to stop making this a freedom argument. If you want to make it some other argument, okay, I may buy that. But a freedom argument? That's just dumb. Yeah, yeah, and because and, I'd, I'd really love for somebody to explain to me how putting on a mask is a bigger infringement on your freedom than you infecting me with a deadly disease. That's right. That's right. You know, how, how, would, how is that first one a bigger infringement on, on somebody's personal freedom than the second one? That's right. Um, you know, and because that's what you're doing. And, uh, you know, whether you can see it or, or feel it or not, that's exactly what you're doing. But, you know, listen, but again, it's back to we, we've our Republican lawmakers, uh, especially in this state, have have played to that notion. They have they have played it up. They have talked about, you know, they've coddled these people. And and so that's why, you know, th- there was a, a that story in AL.com over the weekend written by Roy Johnson and Cameron Smith. And and I like Roy a lot, uh, and and read a lot of his stuff, and 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 I, I I have no problem with the story that he wrote. He wrote what what was told to him by other people who attended this meeting. Um, I question, I question how much good came from that outside of the people who participated in that meeting. Um, uh, you know, I, I, you know, tra- so, Tracy Estes was one representative. Tra- Tracy Estes, uh, Danny Garrett was one that was in there as well. Both Republicans, and they wanted they they legitimately wanted to better understand what was taking place with protests, uh, what was going on in the black community, why they were so hurt, why a lot of their friends were so angry about what had taken place, and they wanted to better understand it. And man, I congratulate the hell out of them for that. Okay, and so it's they perfect, and so they reached out to. Yes. The Democrats. Yes. And, and set up a meeting in a church 
in Montgomery. And they all got together and decided to talk about this history that has led to the protest that took place after the murder of George Floyd. Um, and so, you know, and a lot of good things were shared in that. Uh, but my column was, I have a real doubt, I guess is the best word. Uh, I'm really skeptical that that this goodness will transcend past that group of people that met. And I say that because one of the things that they talked about in that meeting was redlining. And they come to learn that one of the Republican lawmakers, a, rep a lawmaker, a an elected representative uh, in this state representing some 45,000 people, didn't know what redlining was. How the hell do you not know what redlining is? You know, I mean, uh, and so, and then to take that piece of information and take a look then at the broader picture of what's taking place within the Alabama Republican Party and the National Republican Party in terms of critical race theory and the banning of, of history teachers teaching certain topics, specifically those tied to race and racism, and teaching kids a true and accurate history of the racism that has led to, I mean, so many things in this country. So, I mean, it's a, to teach that would be such a service to people and would do so much good in, in bringing people together. But regardless, they don't want to do that. And so what I, I can't get past that in my head that you don't know what this this racism is that's existed for some 60 years now that mm -hmm. has deprived black communities of resources that has you know provide uh, deprived black homeowners of home loans you know or of decent rates and it's right. just how how do you and now you want to ban the teaching of anything that that would allow you to learn these things so there is this phenomenon that we call willful ignorance mm -hmm. uh where people just they don't try, they try to avoid history, I think, consciously or facts consciously. Uh, they, uh, they, they live lives that are sort of purposely oblivious. Mm -hmm. And I think that that accounts for some of this. But Josh, I'm going to tell you, I think there are a lot of people, and I, we've talked about this before on the podcast, I believe. There are a lot of people who I think are not willfully ignorant. They literally have been deprived of a thorough accounting of history, yeah, especially in our state. And I think there are a lot of people who really don't know about a lot of the things that have had an impact on uh, black people and, and other people of color because of the, the, the way that the history has been taught. Mm -hmm. So I would say that um, while it is astounding to you and me, as conscious people, uh, people that have, I would even say we've probably done more than our due diligence just by virtue of who we are and the work we do and all of that. There are a lot of people, I think, who are, who are not willfully ignorant, who are just ignorant, who are just uninformed. And so this legislator, whoever he was, because I don't think he was named in the story. No, he was uh, not, no. Um, is probably not, is probably not unlike the typical Alabamian, white Alabamian specifically, but maybe even maybe even beyond white Alabamians. So uh, to your, but what I liked about your column when I when I read it, what I loved about your column, actually didn't just like it, I loved it, 
was that you you connected the dots. There is an absolute connection between people like this legislator who have absolutely no clue that historically the United States government, the mm-hmm. banking industry, the housing industry have colluded to ghetto ghettoize black people. Colluded to do it. Absolutely. Sure. Within the law, created no laws doubt. to do it and regulations to do it. Mm-hmm. The fact that this person did not know that is, is almost exhibit A for why this move to ban critical race theory uh, and other uh, examinations of history that has had an impact on black people or that reflects the contributions and experiences of black people is so problematic. It's so problematic. And you connected those dots, I think, very well. You made a strong case. And and I hope it is not lost on not just Democrats, but even, you know, Republicans who are thinking people, you know. We don't all, you know, the thing I love about this country is we're not, none of us are monoliths, right? Black people are not monolithic. White people are not monolithic. Democrats aren't monolithic. You know, Republicans aren't. We, we all have our, our varying points of views about how to arrive at solutions. But what I love is that if you are a person of conscience, no matter what your party affiliation is, your racial background or whatever, you want to see things get better. And so to arrive at that point, we got to have information. That's critical. So it is a, it's unfortunate that this Republican did not know. It is, I think, great that these Republicans sought out uh, their black colleagues to try to get a better understanding from their standpoint of what was going on in this country uh, after post-George Floyd. Uh, but I will also say, like you, I'm not optimistic that this is going to result in some seismic sea change in terms of what happens in our state politically and culturally. But I do think it's important that it happen, and I think it's maybe, maybe, maybe a starting point. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, I, I would like to think that it is. And I do. Listen, I, I think that it, it was great that those guys reached out and that they wanted to learn more. And I think that it'll ultimately help them be better people. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I think it will. Uh, but, you know, at, at the same time, it would be nice if we had that sort of effort from a lot of people because, you know, you look around and I mean, there are so many. You mentioned some of the examples of, of things that have gone on, uh, you know. Uh, but I mean, let's let's talk about some of those some of the things the most tangible things that we can see. You know, why do you think it is that there is very little broadband service in in black communities? You know, I mean, because it is. I mean, you look at you look at the percentage uh, of blacks in Alabama, and then look at the percentage of blacks in Alabama that lack access to to decent broadband. You know, why mm-hmm. why do you think that is? Why do you think all the major interstates run through what once was thriving black communities? You know, mm-hmm. why why do you think that happens? You know, mm-hmm. what what do you think happened there? Uh, you know what? And it's it's why do you think there are so few grocery stores in yeah. black communities? You think black, black people don't right. eat food? They don't buy food anymore? I mean, you know, I mean, that's you know, what do you think happened there? Uh, I mean, it's just it's because they couldn't get the loans to do the business in those communities. It's good. Mm-hmm. You know, they couldn't. 
and that's you know the zoning boards and uh, you know all sorts of things that have been put in place uh, over the course of time have you know and this is I'm not talking about people walking into these <laughs> into these entities wearing hoods and burning crosses out front okay right. they're not right. doing that and a lot of them will tell you that they're not racist people at all that they want everybody to to thrive but there's an underlying current there of 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 bias Mm-hmm. And and when you have people with that bias in positions of power, you have those issues. You have those those sorts of things that take place. Just like with the banking, uh, with the banking people, I guarantee you that the overwhelming majority of people that denied those black people home loans because there have been a shit ton of denials out there. I guarantee you the overwhelming majority of the people, those loan officers that denied them, would tell you that there was some reason other than race that played into it. But when you examine the facts of it and you compare this black uh, applicant to this white applicant and you match up, you know, credit score, income, loan amount, everything, they're the same. So the numbers match up. The only difference is one is white, one is black. One's buying in a white neighborhood, one's buying in a black neighborhood. You know, that's that. And and then you've classified the neighborhoods. You know what I mean? That's. And so. And to me, it is it has impacted people, and I've had arguments with people in my family about, you know, well, how come all the black people live in poor neighborhoods that look like, you know, and I've said, well, I think we could have a whole long discussion about this, and I could tell you some things that you probably don't really want to hear, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, let's let's go, let's get it started here, yeah, you know. And I would and I would say that the conversation really needs to start with with knocking down. The first fallacy, which is all blacks, mm-hmm. you know, all blacks don't live in poor neighborhoods. Mm. You know, uh, let's 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 stipulate that. Now, are black people uh, predominantly uh, or or uh, impacted? Uh, I think are, are black people disproportionately. That was the word I was looking for. Are we disproportionately impacted by poverty? Yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. the case. But again, if you understand the history of this country, you understand why. Yes. And and that's where I think it becomes uncomfortable for a lot of white people because they don't want to believe that their government and their institutions uh, were were culpable that they that they were conscious decisions made to mm-hmm. to to create an environment where there was a baked in white supremacy. You know? well, it was all welfare, David. That's what it was. It right. was a welfare system Pe- that made all the right. black people lazy. That's right. what it was. You know, and, yeah, yeah pe- people want to think, that's exactly right. People want to think that that there was some sort of, uh, well, there's just nothing we could control. It's just, you know, we all had the same shot and these people just didn't, you know, and the ones that did, well, you know, that's great. They're good Negroes, but the rest of them, you know, well, they're lazy Negroes or or they were trapped in, you know, the the culture of their community or something mm-hmm. else. When the reality is, yeah, people are trapped, but they've been trapped by the culture of white supremacy that institutionalized and codified, you know, the kinds of economic structures and legislation and regulations that created these communities and circumstances. That's documented history. Yeah. Documented. Yes. You can't get around it, man. I mean, you, no. you, all the evidence in the world is right there. I mean, it's just, yeah. uh, and, 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 you know, for up until what, you know, the 50s, 60s and early 70s, people were open about it. You well, know, I mean, this was, exactly. you know, I mean, I, you know, 
people my age were, you know, were just like you know, born into this system that mm-hmm. was openly racist, you know, and uh, and so uh, and then there were all you think that went away overnight, you know? I mean, look look at all the examples of these things that that we found. And I mean, it's current stuff, uh, lending, especially credit cards. Uh, all, you know, there are all of these things that have have been out there for so many years that have given white people a financial advantage, a blatant financial advantage. Because uh, they over, were white, not for any yes, other reason, but because no they other were white. reason. Yeah. No other reason whatsoever, other than when they looked at a white person to come in and apply for a loan, they decided that that white person, because he was white, had a better chance to repay it than a, a minority person. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's, it's killed people, man. It's killed entire generations of people and families and businesses uh, and, and prevented, you know, black owned businesses from, from thriving the way white owned businesses would. And, and, you know, and I honestly it's resulted in a lot of theft of, of black ideas uh, for business uh, because, you know, they couldn't go anywhere with it. Uh, mm. And so it was stymied by the financial uh, limits that were put on them unfairly. And, you know, some other white people came in, stole the ideas and took off with it because they were, they had those financial resources. And it's just all that stuff adds up. And that's the sort of history that if you tell people about it and you tell kids what's gone, what's gone on, they don't hate themselves. They don't hate America. They say, well, shit, I'm not going to do that. I want to make sure everything is fair. You know, I want to make sure that we have my people are good and, and we're, we have fairness and stuff. And that's what they arrive at, not the opposite of that. And to think the other way, it's you're projecting your your feelings and your thoughts on them. Um, and so, you know, that's that's just me. so. Yeah, no, you're right. All right. You're I guess right. we probably need to slide out of here and uh, get uh, get Chris England in and uh, and talk about another uh, institution that is steeped in racism, our prison system, and, mm-hmm. um, and and so many other problems with the parole boards and everything else. So uh, let's slide out. It's Alabama Politics This Week. We'll be back in a minute. Hey, everybody. If you would uh, like an opportunity to interact with us here at Alabama Politics This Week, uh, we've got a great way for you to do that. Uh, shoot a question over to apwproducer at gmail.com. That's apwproducer at gmail.com. Anything about Alabama politics you want to know about, uh, I don't know, what, what everybody likes to drink or uh, where everybody likes to hang out or you know, whatever, whatever your question may be. Uh, what chances the Democrats might have uh, in the uh, the upcoming midterm elections? Uh, shoot us a question over at apwproducer at gmail.com. apwproducer at gmail.com. Thanks. All righty, welcome back. Uh, Alabama Politics this week. Uh, we are happy, as always, to be joined by Representative Chris England. Um, and, and I, I you know, You've come on a lot of times, and we've talked about a lot of different things. And um, I, I think this one, because we want to talk about mainly the uh, the parole board um, and, and the and, and the Department of Corrections overall as well. And I, because I think that you're one of the few people that that hammer away at this thing. And, and believe me, I I get banging your head against the wall. Uh, and, and so I, you know, for, so first of all, I want to say I, I appreciate it and I know a lot of other people do and I, and I appreciate you coming on today as well. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, the prison issue in Alabama is possibly one of the most comprehensive 
crisis and failures in our history. And we are at a crossroads of massive problems and extreme lack of leadership. And you can kind of see what that's getting us. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, we, we spoke earlier this week about, uh, and I know you've tweeted a, a, a bunch about it as well and, and talked to, to other folks about one of our biggest problems, uh, as we always talk about prison overcrowding and everything else, but one of our biggest problems that we have is with our parole board, our pardons and parole board. Um, and under its current leadership there, it is denying a, an astronomical percentage of, of paroles. Um, and, and there is some, there seems to be some racial bias, you know, whether intentional or not, uh, in, in granting those paroles. I, I don't, what can be done to, to change that? Um, there are some things. And, and first, I want to make sure we understand, like, I don't think people understand that, like, in 2010, we passed a law that was supported by the governor and the, and the attorney general. And then subsequently, um, Lee Waffney was appointed, appointed chair. Uh, that law created a system where there is, it's, you got the director, who at the time was Charlie Graddock, who is now Kim Ward, but the board is separate. So their decision-making authority is completely separate from that, from really any oversight at all. So I think it's very important to recognize that administratively, uh, uh, it's probably, it's controlled by now Kim Ward and it's, but decision-making is strictly up to the board. And I also want to stress that the, the, the board's decision-making power is 100% completely discretionary, which means that every single person that appears before the board, uh, every parole applicant could be facing a different standard than the person before them. Also, which means that if it's completely subjective, that means that you as an applicant really don't know what it takes to uh, satisfy a threshold that really doesn't exist. And when you think about that, and you put it in context, that it's completely subjective, um, the, the board has 100% discretion, it becomes really interesting when you see a, a racial disparity of that size develop. Because what it suggests is that although the standard is subjective, one thing that is objective is that the applicant's skin color may play a role in whether or not you get that uh, you get released. And yeah. you, don't, you don't even have to you know I don't even have to say that you know you, it's racist. I mean it's either explicit. Or implicit bias as playing a role in this. But the results sort of speak for themselves. I mean, at some point when you get 2,200 cases worth of worth of data, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the pattern is pretty well suggested, pretty well uh, determined, which means that it doesn't matter what each individual person is charged with. At this point, you've got apples and oranges, apples and apples, whatever you want. The yeah. data is what it is now. So we got a pattern that has developed and now we need to try to figure out how to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, it's because it is, it's glaring. 
it's a glaring thing because it, it, we're not talking about just a, a handful. We're talking about uh, more than double. Uh, more than double white uh, white uh, prisoners have been granted parole uh, over over their black counterparts. It, it just it doesn't. That it's hard for me to get past that number. I mean, if it was just a handful, you say, ah, okay, well, you know, but it was, you know, fewer, fewer white people up for, uh, up for paroles, uh, and more double, uh, gaining it. It just didn't, I, you know, I don't, and the, here's my other issue is nobody ever answers for anything in the Department of Corrections or, or the Parole Board. Nobody ever has to answer to anybody for anything ever. Does it, I mean, you never hear, uh, of any sort of repercussions for anybody. And, and Lee Wathney, she, she never answers any questions from anybody. Uh, she's never put under a microscope for the way she's doing the job. Uh, I, and so, I, no, I mean, I've tried to, to talk to her. I, it, it doesn't happen. She doesn't, you know, you get press releases and you get statements, but when, is, there a, is there some means to hold anybody accountable? Well, uh, public pressure for sure. Um, but... Um, the only way you can hold her accountable is through impeachment. And, you know, I haven't been shy about it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, and, you know, I'm exploring whatever avenues are that, that are available, including that to try to at least continue to focus attention on where the, where I think the problem is. Um, and let's, I, I think we also need to be very clear about it's when we were talking about Charlie Graddock initially, Yes, he was a problem, um, but we found out that we didn't necessarily cut the head off the snake, if you know what I mean. And um, there are three members of that board, and she's the chairperson. And I want to. Uh, there's another component to this problem as well. The racial disparity is one, but the fact of the matter is, it's the Bureau of Pardons and Paroles. And it, they barely grant pardons, and they barely grant paroles. And, and a pardon in and of itself, no one I've ever met that's been looking for a pardon gets one because they just want to frame it and put it on their wall. Right. They get it because they've run into a roadblock in their life, and a pardon is what it would take to knock the roadblock down, whether it be getting a job, whether it be voting, whether it be getting their gun rights back, many different forms of relief, right? And if someone comes to you and says, I need a pardon because I'm trying to get a job. And then you say, well, I, I deny that pardon. And then they commit another offense and then you blame them for that. Well, it sounds like the system itself is designed to make people fail. And then look at the results and say, I told you that, that, that you know, they never should have been let out or something like that. So, yeah. so, so, and I would now, uh, the, the, the board does not keep up with the demographics on pardons but I'm willing to bet that it probably tracks the same demographic racial disparity that we see with paroles. And also, oh, I, I'm going, uh, you know, I really can go on for hours. Uh, Cause you know, you just, you know, every time I talk about it, it's like, it's like lighting a fuse. But I also want to point out that the board itself is over a thousand, it's thousands behind in pardons. There are people who apply for a pardon have been waiting for years for a response. And for them to only do 20 a week, 30 a week, it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. But there are also people who are eligible for parole 
that are also waiting for their, op their opportunity to be heard. And they've been waiting for years too. They're hundreds behind on paroles too. So when I tell you that the system is broken beyond repair, there isn't a part of it or a metric of it that's working well. None of it is. Okay. And we can also go into the other part of this argument too, because there will be many people that will tell you that the reason why you don't release people early is because of this, this, this notion that it protects the public, but it doesn't. It actually, oper it actually works against that notion. And if we can talk about that further, if you'd like. I, I'd like to, to, before you go too much further than where we are now, Chris, I'd like to see if we can sort of untangle what has created this monster. So my first question is, um, it appears as though from what you're saying, there's only one mechanism of accountability, and that is impeachment. There is no other, you're saying there's no political mechanism, there's no regulatory mechanism to hold this board accountable for a lack of productivity uh, or discriminatory practices? No. Um, uh, you know, the position of to be appointed, be on the board, you have to be appointed which means that the governor appoints you and the Senate uh, confirms you. And um, the, the, and I want, you know, just for a second, full disclosure, what preceded this law passing in 2019, that you can directly create, you can directly correlate the log gem that we have now in our system to the passage of that bill in 2019. Um, uh, what preceded that was a person got out on parole and murdered three people. So uh, as often happens in Alabama, uh, we take the extreme and try to make, try to normalize it and make it the mean. So we legislate from that perspective. And while that's a tragedy, and I would never suggest that, you know, a loss of life is something that we just gloss over. Um, as legislators, we're responsible for governing which means that we cannot work from the extremes in any issue because either way it goes, uh, we've got to make sure that the system itself works. So as you, as, back to your, your, your original question, unfortunately, the only way to hold folks um, on the board of pardons and paroles accountable is to, is through impeachment. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> this is really astounding because it sounds as though, uh, and and forgive me, I don't know the answer to this, which is why I'm asking: is the is these are lifetime appointments, or are there are there term limits? What explain that part of it? Six years. Um, you, you, six year. Six year appointment. That's right. She is still have. We have four years of terror to go. Okay, so at that point, then you're saying her if she were to be replaced, it would probably have to be by another governor, not, you know, or, or, and probably a democratic governor. Right. Okay. And, well, I, I want to say also, but you know, we, we, this process in and of itself, if you just trace the history of, uh, of, of, of Lee Watley, she's a former prosecutor from Jefferson County. Uh, she was 
she was put there, in my opinion, because um, she is married to a particular ideology that, that believes that um, putting everybody in jail guarantees us some sort of safe, a, a safe community or a safe public, which studies and science and, and, and history, everything shows that, that, that that's absolutely not true. So um, just as much of this can be laid at the feet of Steve Marshall, because he played a really, uh, he pushed really hard for the legislation that passed in 2019. He pushed really hard for her appointment. So a lot of this can be laid at his feet as well. And you have to remember, while we're sitting here talking about, we need, she needs to be held accountable for inactivity. There are certain people who also only are complete 180 who married themselves to the same ideology and think that she's doing a fantastic job. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, you know, AG mm. Marshall is, is, has been so great in, in keeping our prisons safe as well. I mean, you know, he's, uh, uh, you know, that uh, as part of his, his deal as well as, you know, is litigating this lawsuit uh, that's taking place from, from the federal government right now. Uh, and, and over the course of the, that, hell, he's not done anything. Well, put, you put litigation in that regard in quotes because we pay a private attorney for that. Uh, we've made a, the name slips my mind right now, but um, we give them millions and millions of dollars a year uh, to, to litigate this, call, this case. And then, you know, what's funny about that though, is like the worst is, I don't know if we're even trying to keep it a secret anymore, we believe, just like the, the Department of Justice has alleged, that our prison system is, is worse than the death penalty. I mean, it, we believe it's to the point where we've been scrambling now for four or five years to uh, try to find billions of dollars to build new prisons. So we, we acknowledge that our prison system is a mess, but we're paying somebody to go into court and defend us against the allegation that we're essentially admitting by uh, this insatiable pursuit of building new, really new, building new prisons. Yeah, it's amazing. And no, no, it's uh, it, it's quite a contrast in in uh, common sense. Uh, but you know, it's a um, you, you watch the whole, you watch this, look at this whole situation. All right, and there is not, I've said this over and over, there is not a single piece of this that works the way that it's supposed to work. There is not, there's nothing that isn't failing under Jeff Dunn's watch, under Lee Watney's watch, nothing that isn't failing. And, and here's what I think where people misunderstand uh, or, or don't realize they're being hurt is if we did it properly, we could rehabilitate many of these people who are in there. Um, but, we have turned our backs on, and David wrote a great column this week about the, the new death penalty approach here, and, and I'm sure he, will, he, will, he was going to ask you about that as well. But the, we, we spent all this money on this, and at the same time, we've allowed uh, those education programs and training programs to just melt into almost nothing. Uh, the participation in those programs that has declined over the course of the last 10 years, it, it's thousands by the thousands and i what are we hoping to do well here, here's here's an interesting think about it this way too like if you're incarcerated you've been incarcerated for 15 20 years and there's this carrot out there that says that if you do a 
um, better yourself, which means get a certificate in something, get, you know, get a degree, get an associate's degree. Great, you know, you're exemplary, um, and you're you no know, no behavioral issues. Even in that hell hole, you managed to do the best that you can do, and then you apply for parole. You go in front of the parole board. And then they deny you because they said that what you did 25 years ago was too serious in order to allow you to be released. So now what happens to that person after they've done everything the right way and they still get denied? So, I mean, and, and it's like every component of our criminal justice system operates in like a silo and to the point where they believe that what they do doesn't have an impact on the rest of the system. So, you know, as bad a job as Jeff Dunn is doing, imagine trying to manage a population that has no hope. As bad as a job as Jeff Dunn is doing, imagine trying to manage a population where there's no, there's no opportunity that, that your success within their facility does not correlate to early release, right? So imagine dealing with a population that has really just no hope, right? And in, in that same population, doesn't have any COs, maybe one or two for 200 people, but that CO may be the one selling drugs and passing out other uh, illicit, illegal contraband. So like when you say like the system itself, there's no component of it that is operating effectively or efficiently, you are absolutely correct. But remember, we're dealing with an ideology and for 20 some odd years, 30 years, Whenever we get to a crisis situation in most, in most government-related items, it's generally because we've taken people and we've tried to put them somewhere we can forget they exist. Well, for years, it was the popular thing to do. We create a new crime and then make a ridiculous punish, punishment for it. Because I can go back to my constituency and say, I'm keeping you safe because I'm locking these folks up forever. Well, again, that mindset is actually making us less safe. And let me ask you a question. If you lost a loved one due to murder, because they were murdered, do you think it would make a difference to you if that person was on parole or had EOS and ended a sentence? Do you think as a victim that would matter to you? It's a great point. So it's a great point. So think about it this way. If I'm really concerned about public safety, right? And the people that have been there the longest are supposedly the ones that I'm supposed to be scared of the most. Wouldn't it make sense for me to get them out before their sentence ends so they have some supervision and some assistance and not recommitting offenses before they get to a point where they don't feel like they have a choice? So that, that's what that, that's like the whole trick of this. Like somebody will tell you that the longer they stay in, the better we are. But that's really just not the case, because the longer they stay in, I don't have space for people who really need to be there. And it doesn't just happen on the parole side. It also happens on the local level when you're talking about county jails, too. The more people you stuff in there unnecessarily, the less space you're going to have for the folks you absolutely have to have in those facilities to be safe. And you're also creating uh, you're further creating a culture that, um, as you alluded to, uh, is, is ripe with criminality, 
rife with criminality internally and other dysfunctions that then acculturates, further acculturates people in that way, which then in turn, whenever they do get out, makes recidivism a lot more likely because they are that much more disconnected from the rules and the pace and the, and the tone of regular society. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very tragic. You know, we are, we are doing damage to ourselves by not creating an environment uh, in the prisons that would hopefully uh, lessen the chance of recidivism. Uh, I, you know, Josh, Josh pointed to my column. I want to ask you um, uh, a quick question about that. And then I want to ask you one other quick question. Uh, my first question is, uh, is in reference to my column, which is about the, the, uh, the direction the state seems to be going in and using nitrogen uh, hypoxia as a way to execute people. Uh, do you have any thoughts or concerns about that? Um, it's, it's very difficult for me to square uh, a humane civilization killing people for retribution. Um, I, I, I have a difficult time squaring that. Uh, in Alabama, um, that sells, though, unfortunately. It's amazing that the pro-life state, what sells here is killing people, but it sells here. Um, and so, you, you know, you're, you're forced to kind of operate under those circumstances. So, um, you know, whatever I do, knowing that the back, knowing that the likelihood is that we'll always be a death penalty state, we, we just try to make sure that it's used in the most extreme cases, uh, and for the, and, and seldomly used for the most serious offenses. Um, I mean, I think that's probably the best that we can do in Alabama. Um, but for me, as, as you pointed out, um, you know, I just have a very difficult time figuring out how the state struggles to find humane ways to kill people, right? But at the same time, you think about it this way too, being in Alabama's, the Department of Justice said that being in Alabama's prisons is worse than the death penalty. So like, being sentenced to prison here is a death sentence, and it's, it could potentially be a death sentence. I mean, uh, Jeff Doug apparently can't manage the coronavirus within the facility, has no plan of action. So, you know, you're being exposed to an infectious, deadly disease that he has no plan for. Um, or you could be murdered or killed because of the violence there. You could overdose from a drug given to you by a CO. And let's keep in mind now, there's no visitation going on in, in prison right now. You can't go visit anybody. So um, how's the, how are the drugs getting there? You, you tell me. Um, so uh, I, again, I, you know, uh, we, we've had that discussion about the drugs before, you know, trying to make sure that people can't figure out who, what, drug, what drug cocktail they're using because, you know, we don't want to scare the people who provide the drugs off. I mean, you know, it's just amazing to me though that the Department of Corrections can figure out how to get that done, but they can't they can't do anything else. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me you you uh you already started talking about the the final question I wanted to ask you, which was about the outbreaks of COVID in our prisons. Uh do you think there's gonna be any legal culpability here for what appears to be uh an un 
as you've suggested, uh, an unsuccessful uh, and, and, and maybe I hesitate to even say attempt uh, because I wonder if there's even an attempt being made to really uh, protect the prisoners from COVID. But but I'll just use that word anyway, an, an unsuccessful attempt to uh, protect them or mitigate the spread of COVID. Do you think there's going to be any litigation coming out of that? Um, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, aside from the litigation that we already have, uh, I, I would suggest, believe that that would probably just be another component of the of the um the lack of leadership and the dangerous conditions within the system that we have now um and you know from the very beginning of this um we went what three or four months where the or commissioner dunn was telling everybody that you know by the grace of god we don't have COVID in our facility but he hadn't tested anybody yet. Don't test for it. You ain't got it. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, to this day, <laughs> I don't know if we actually had a massive testing protocol in our system. Uh, I mean, uh, because, uh, you know, it can't be money. Um, he's got millions of dollars from CARES Act money. And before that, uh, he had millions of dollars of, of COVID money to do that specifically was to test and try to find different ways to mitigate the spread within the facilities. But um, as somebody who's, as you pointed out, uh, Josh, uh, somebody who speaks out often about the prison system, I often hear from people uh, who are incarcerated and their families, and they say that, you know, there's no, there's no social distancing, there's no plan, there's no mask, um, there's no real plan in any, any of these facilities to mitigate the spread of this infectious disease. So. Um, in any other circumstances besides dealing with people that uh, the public generally doesn't care about, um, you would think that you'd have a very strong cause of action there. Um, the negligence alone should create it, but because we're dealing with people that um, folks are trying to forget exist, the likelihood is that, you know, I don't know how much, um, what avenue you would have for redress in a situation like that. Yeah. Well, look, I, I know we've, we've, we've kept you over and, uh, and we appreciate you coming on. I, I will say that it's uh, just listening to, to y'all talk about uh, the uh, ADOC uh, coming up with a way, a new way to, to kill people, essentially. It's, uh, it's, it's perfect. It's really kind of the perfect uh, stance for them, I would say, because it, they've, they've managed to solve the one problem that they don't have, which is killing people. Um, you know, and, and that's, and that really, it kind of sums up what, what we have with our prison system here is we, we have a, a bunch of people that, uh, we've tried to throw away and forget about. And, um, and then, you know, it just is, it's a shame. It really is a shame the way we've just discarded so many, so many people there. And we hear from them. I hear from them a lot. I know, uh, Eddie Burkhalter works with us, hears from them every day. Uh, talking about things that are going on. It's, and it's just a shame, but listen, I, I really do appreciate you coming on and, and I really do appreciate you keeping up this fight. And, um, and I, I hope at some point we can, we can get some folks to pay attention to this absolute crisis that's taking place right in front of us. I mean, not just, I mean, I think terminology is important. I think it's, this is an absolute humanitarian crisis. Um, and I don't think we should forget that. I, you know, people like to use the word criminal, inmate, and many of those things to, to forget that they're talking about a human. Um, so 
This is humanitarian crisis. And our Department of Corrections and our pardons and paroles for, for that lack of, a, I mean, just as a system failure, is so focused on building new buildings that they're willing to allow other humans to be collateral damage to get there. It's an, you're right. It's an absolute humanitarian crisis and, and crisis is not too strong a word. It may not be strong enough. Uh, but, but and, and uh, you know, one thing that we didn't mention in this whole conversation, the words Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal never came up because it's not one of those problems. Right. And, and, and literally we waste money and it costs us lives to do this the wrong way. You're right, hundred percent right. There, there are states that have figured this out. You know, they're out there. They exist. Uh, th- you know, uh, decent prisons in America exist out there, and people have rehabilitated uh, prisoners and and uh, and have great success in doing so. Uh, Don't worry about it, Josh. We got we got critical race theory and big tech citizenship <laughs> under control. <laughs> That's right. All right, we're gonna slide out. As Representative Chris Eagle, thank you again for uh, for for spending some time with us, and and hopefully we can we can get a message out here to somebody that'll listen eventually. Yeah, thanks, man. We appreciate you. Hey, everybody, wouldn't mind, uh, go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice rating and review, or maybe not even a nice one, just a rating and a review. Uh, just let us know what you think about the podcast, and uh, we've gotten to where we read some of these reviews on the air, because some of them are pretty funny and clever, so be funny and clever, and you'll get your review read on the air, and uh, the rating helps us out a little bit as well. So if you don't mind, leave us a nice rating and a review, or terrible rating and a review, whatever you'd like to do. However you feel about the podcast, we appreciate your, your input, and uh, thanks for listening as always. All righty, welcome back, boys and girls. We're wrapping this thing up here. Um, I just, uh, really appreciate uh, Representative Chris England coming on with us. He's uh, he's very good. Um, always, yeah. always Man good. He knows his stuff. Yeah. Uh, I forgot uh, I forgot to do the review. <laughs> Sorry, at the <laughs> at the open uh, at, or at the close. We got, of we the got open. caught up in our. Yeah, it was, it was in the open, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I forgot to do that. We normally do that in the yeah, question. So we're just we, doing both we, together, if that's all right. How about, uh, how about yeah. I read the review, you read the question? All right, sounds good. Uh, I listen on, this is uh, from Dem in Bama. So, uh, you know, it's a partisan crowd. Um, I listen on Sunday when I get on the treadmill. It seems the faster Josh talks, the faster I walk. Always a good pod. Listen, and I really appreciate that you the fact that you get on the treadmill and, and listen to me while I'm talking to you like this. Because if if you are talk if you're walking as fast as I'm talking right now, then you are doing burning some calories, my friend. So <laughs> thank you. Look at you, you Look know, at right? assisting, helping keep people safe, man. Help, That's right. Help, listen, all about the kids. It's all about the kids. Yeah, there you go. They ought to add this to Obamacare. Josh, yeah. Josh talking, faster walking. Let make that part of That's exactly what I think. It's exactly yeah. what I think. Yeah. <laughs> so here's a question from an unnamed listener. Do any of the Republican governor candidates have a chance of besting Kay Ivey in the GOP primary? That's part A. And then part B, do you expect any other better candidates to throw their hats in? Huh. Well, uh, would you like would you like to take this, David? Or you know? I, I mean, I can I can definitely uh, give it a shot. I mean, my answer is uh, I don't think anybody's got a chance at beating her. 
Uh, I think she's strong. I think she's well-established. Um, I, I don't, I mean, what I would expect is that if, if they were going to beat her in the Republican primary, they would have to outflank her on the right somehow. And I just don't know mm-hmm. if there's enough room on the right for them to do that. Uh, she's not, she's not an extreme conservative like a Mo Brooks or somebody or Marjorie Taylor Greene, but she uh-huh. is a solid conservative. I just, I don't know, where's the room to do that? So I, I would say, no, I think she's going to be fine. So do we expect any better candidates to throw their hats in? If they're talking about on the gubernatorial side uh, for the Republicans, I would say, no, I don't think so. Um, if they're talking about... Um, you know, uh, the general election, of course, I expect the Democrat, whoever the Democrats come up with to be better, Yeah, but, yeah. but better, yeah. better doesn't necessarily translate into an easier race for us as Democrats. But, but yeah, I would think, uh, whoever the Democrat is, I would assume is going to be a better choice than governor Ivy. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I agree, I agree with basically everything you said there. Uh, I, there's, I don't see any chance of anybody beating her because whoever, uh, you're right, they're going to have to go to the right of her. Uh, and so that basically leaves them chasing, you know, Hollywood pedophiles in the bottom of a pizza parlor yeah. uh, uh, somewhere. And, um, you know, and no, no real person is voting for that crazy. Uh, you know, I, you've heard Jim Ziegler, you know, possibly going to get back in the race. I mean, but that's, Certainly, no better candidate than than Kay Ivey, no, um, absolutely, uh, or not. Tim James, you know, somebody along those lines, and and, yeah. and those are all people that would be to the right of her. You know, they would uh, mm. uh, that opposed her on the gas tax, that opposed her on this and the mask mandates and things like that. And really, those are the only two avenues of attack at this point is how she handled the pandemic, uh, the fact that she had the gall to listen to some scientists and stuff for and doctors for for a period of time there before it got to be too close to election time um and and the fact that she pushed hard on this gas tax um and you know i think that could hurt her i i tell you i to me one thing that could help her all the way around is if she pushed harder on the gambling bill uh you know it, it, to me I, and I, that goes for pretty much every politician out there uh, I, the polling on that is amazing that people, you know, and, and not to mention it's a hell of a jobs bill uh, that you can yeah. tout in your districts to say, listen, I brought in, you know, thousands of jobs, a good paying jobs here and these resort style uh, casino hotels that are going to open up in a variety of areas around the state. It just, it's mind boggling to me that we can't get people behind this thing. That's going to literally generate a billion dollars a year in tax revenue for the state and provide scholarships uh, to colleges for, we're going to give away free college like Bernie Sanders. here. we can't get anybody to take advantage of it for nothing. You know, yeah. we don't, we don't have to give away any sort of incentives or anything else. It's just insane to me, but yeah, and, and and to me, all she would have to do, or or whoever it is, if it's not Governor Ivy, whoever the candidate is, that would be staunchly behind it, is just start with the obvious. Gambling's already in the state of Alabama, but the state of Alabama nor its citizens as a whole benefit from it. So what we're talking about here is is merely setting up a structure so that the gambling that already goes on can be enhanced in such a way that the state will benefit. That's yeah. all they have to do. That That's the argument, period. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, we're going to put most of them 
at places where legal gambling is already occurring. I mean, mm-hmm. literally, all but one, all but one location would be at places where gambling is already taking place. Uh, you know, and not only that, where people have the citizens of those counties have already approved of gambling taking place. It just, it's just insanity to me that we're we're talking about. It. We're talking about creating like fifteen thousand jobs here, wow. now, and that doesn't include the temporary jobs that would go in to building the casinos and building the hotels and all the facilities around them. Uh, you know, it just is insane to me that we can't get more people behind this thing, and it's not a bigger push. I, I just, I'll never understand it, and I think that a lot of people are really missing the boat with this. I, I really do. I really think that they're missing the the good from a po- from a pure political standpoint. I think that they're missing out on on an opportunity to really help themselves and 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 get behind something that's going to be very popular once people see what it is and what it's going to do going forward, uh, because it's going to be a major it's going to be a major thing, man. You know, if they if they pass that bill, can you imagine the ads and things that are going to go into the scholarship program and talking about you know sending kids, especially from poor communities, to college for free? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, just think about that. It's just insane to me. It. Uh, anyway, so that, that's uh, there's a lot of things insane in this state that I, I, I'll never be able to wrap my head around. So, <laughs> you know, but I hope, and listen, I talked real fast right there, so I hope Dim and Bama is well, got a nice jog out of that. Oh, I um, think I think he did. Yeah, he or she did definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, the, one of the other things we want to talk about, and we're going to talk about it more uh, next week uh, when we have uh, Montgomery Mayor Stephen Reed on, um, but. We wanted to talk about the failure of his anti-discrimination ordinance uh, because we we talked about it last week on the show and um, we we came up for a vote Tuesday and the city council in Montgomery voted it down five to four. Um, You know, there was a whole long discussion about uh, with public comments about, you know, perverts, quote unquote, uh, harassing young girls in women's restrooms because that's what this. Yeah, when you whenever you say you're gonna, uh, you know, uh, remove discrimination against people, that you know, the the immediate thought is this discrimination is apparently keeping men from going into women's restrooms, although there are no locks on women restroom doors. But, um, you know, I I I, did, I don't know, and 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 Stephen Reed was very very angry and very candid in his comments afterwards saying that uh, that now if businesses asked him if you know that called to, to talk about moving to Montgomery uh, and and they shared the values that were in that ordinance uh, he would have to tell them he didn't know if Montgomery was the right place for him um, and and I think that includes a lot of businesses out there uh, some of your major corporations they're not coming to a city uh, that has uh, has a problem with with discrimination and anti diversity measures. That they just don't they don't do that. And you know, I, I just to me, I, it's it's really having lived there for a long long time. Uh, it's really disappointing to me to to see that 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 was voted down. Mm. Um, well, it really was. Yeah, especially for a dumb reason. And I say dumb because if if you talk to psychologists and therapists and social workers, what they're going to tell you is that the biggest threats to, to young ladies and, and young girls is not some man dressed up as a woman trying to get into a bathroom so that he can molest or rape. It's the close family friend who molests and rapes. It's the family member who molests and rapes. 
that's where the danger is. Uh, the, you know, the kind of men, uh, you know, or, or let me not even use their verbiage, the kind of people who are, uh, you know, trans people, uh, they're not, they're not using, uh, their trans identity as a costume so that they can do something nefarious. They are wrestling with questions of identity. They are embracing uh, their identities. Uh, They are on a journey that probably started uh, at childhood and, and 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 has evolved to the point where they are now clear on who they are. You know, this is this has nothing to do with with some purient sexual desire. This is about, you know, self-discovery and identity and self-perception. So, again, there's this this real misnomer, this fallacy out there that just doesn't make any sense. You know, you want to protect young girls and young ladies then, you know, watch who they're hanging around at your house. Watch who they're hanging around at their church. That Watch who they're hanging around at their, with at their school. That's where the danger, and then in the neighborhood, that's where the dangers are. Yeah, but, you know, that, that, that wasn't really, that wasn't really why it failed. You know, we, we, know, we know that. We, that was an excuse that people used, and they leaned on this. Um, this was a bunch of people that were angry that they were going to be forced not to discriminate against people, that this was going to level the playing field um, and, and allow, you know, a lot of, a lot of, again, a lot of black owned minority owned businesses to, uh, to have the same opportunities uh, that they wouldn't be excluded because of, uh, you know, some discrimination that's taken place in the past. It was going to open things up to them. And, uh, and I think a lot of people don't, uh, they, and I think it drives a lot of the discrimination that we see now in, in current day Alabama is we have a lot of white people who are scared to compete on a level playing field. Um, you know, and you you can see that in all walks of life from, you know, from the, the folks that move their kids around so they can play sports uh, at, at a, you know, at the predominantly white private schools and things like that uh, to, you know, because they, they want them to, to be able to be the, a star or a starter or whatever. And they know that they can't compete on a level playing field uh, with the other kids that are at public schools. And so they move them to, to private schools that, that, that to compete on a lesser level. And, and I think that's the, that same sort of attitude kind of translates to later in life. And, uh, you know, they're always seeking an, an easier road. And this is the easier road for a lot of people. So just so help me out, because I because I actually thought that that was while again, I thought it was a dumb argument. I thought that they were sincere in that argument. So you're saying you don't think that's a sincere argument, that this is really just about this sort of I'm going to use the same word that they would use about somebody else, a purient desire to discriminate. Yes, I think it's absolutely a, a desire to discriminate against. Uh, I think this one was more built around uh, a desire to discriminate against the, the LGBTQ community, um, you know, and, and transgender kids, because it's apparently okay now uh, to to uh, just really shit on kids uh, if if you don't agree with whatever sort of lifestyle they have or you can't understand how uh, how they're living, then it's okay to just, you know, belittle them to no end, even though we know suicide rates are astronomical in that, that community. But we, 
you know, I, I think that has has everything to do with this. Is is that I don't think anyone. I mean, were were, were there some crazies out there that maybe felt that way? Yes, but I don't think it was enough to drive those councilmen to vote against this thing. I think the majority of that came from the business community, um, and and had the business community people gotten behind this thing, it would have sailed through. Uh, I, I don't think it had anything to do with real. Um, community angst about uh, perverts, quote unquote, going into women's restrooms. I think it was all built upon uh, a leveling of the playing field and them not wanting to do that. But I mean, listen, we're we're going to have the man on next week, and so we can ask him what you know what he really thinks about that. And maybe I'm completely wrong about this, but you know, having having lived there for for quite some time and covered the the local uh, you know political scene and covered many of the same people who are currently on that council uh, and seen them work and act, uh, I I know kind of what drives things, especially with uh, Charles Genright who, who who runs that council. Um, uh, you know, I, I have a, I have a good idea of, of what took place there. And, and most of it is controlled by a handful of people, uh, that, you know, that, that make, make the decisions. And it's, I mean, you know, it's not a smoky back room sort of conspiracy theory. It's just, you know, it is what it is. It's, you know, those folks drive the decision making. And, uh, I think that's what took place at the, in, in this situation. So mm-hmm. it's a shame. It really is a shame because I think it would have done good for a lot of people there. Um, no doubt. I, I don't. Doesn't seem to me that the one in Birmingham is really hurting anybody. Right. Right. No reports of uh, of quote perverts unquote invading bathrooms. So. Yeah. Right. And yeah, not not yeah. been a huge problem in Birmingham since they passed theirs five years ago. Right. So. <laughs> uh, and and uh, you know, so Reed also said he was going to call. Uh, now when those businesses called to, to looking for a place to move in Alabama, he was going to give them Randall Woodfin's number. <laughs> So right. it's, uh, I mean, which I thought was a great quote, uh, you know, and, uh, it was just so the, the, all of it was so ridiculous and contrived and, uh, you know, the, the whole argument of the, uh, the one council member saying that she just felt like she was bullied into voting for this because she just didn't have time to understand what it was when they had tabled a vote, uh, nearly a month before. Uh, and so specifically, so uh, they could understand it better, and they could go out and talk to their the folks in their community about it. And you know, apparently, a month wasn't long enough uh, for her. So <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she's got other things she's doing. Well, yeah, maybe so. so yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, speaking of somebody that I would love to give something else to do, it's our right wing note of the week. Uh, yeah. That is uh, State Representative Andrew Sorrell. Uh, I think this may be his first appearance on the right-wing nut list, although it shouldn't be, probably. Um, uh, Sorrell has uh, made the rounds this week uh, in various news outlets because uh, he is uh, seeking to pass a man uh, a, a ban on mask mandates. Uh, he wants to he wants to kill the mask mandate and and make it to where the only way and what he's trying to kill specifically are the mandates that are being passed by local school systems. Uh, you know, because right now the governor and the health officer of the state have left it up to local school systems as, as to whether or not they want to impose uh, mass mandates. And they, they, you know, the local boards uh, vote on those things and, and pass them usually. Um, and he wants to outlaw that and force every school system, uh, the, the decision on that to go through Montgomery. The legislature would have to, uh, to approve it. Uh, before local systems could, uh, could implement mask mandates and, uh, uh, his reasoning, of course, is uh, freedom. Freedom. Uh, let me read a quote from Mr. Sorrell here. 
I do support the rights of parents who disagree with me to mask their kids. That should be their choice. I believe in protecting the right of parents to mask their children in school just as much as I believe in protecting the right of parents to not mask their children in school. If a school board said that no child could wear a mask in school, I would be opposed to that too because what I'm opposed to is the school making that decision for the parents. Hmm. Now, does this make sense to you, David? No. Of course it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Uh, You know... (laughs) As we talked about in the first segment, this is a public health issue, which means that there is a community, there's a collective impact on the actions of each individual. And, and, and one individual has the potential to harm a community, depending on that person's health status. So it only makes sense to mandate mask wearing uh, in, I think, really just in any public setting, honestly, but especially in a setting where you have children who, in all likelihood, due to their age, are unvaccinated. It just makes sense because we know that wearing masks is, is a very proven effective way to limit the transmission of the virus um, and to protect people from contracting the virus. So it only makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. The, you know, the, there's, there's no logic in, in what this guy, uh, Sorrell, what he's proposing. There's just, yeah. you know, the idea that we want to try to keep Alabama free from mass mandates is almost a, a sentence to, to death for some people, really. I mean, <laughs> that's not, you know, that's not how things work. You know what I mean? It's not, it's a, the reason that the, the masks are, that we're, we're imposing a mask mandate on people is because it, the masks work best when it, for, to protect people from your germs. You know, it, it keeps, right. because the virus is carried on those droplets that you spew out of your mouth. Right. Uh, if you cut down on the number of those droplets that are being spewed out of your mouth, well, then that cuts down on the virus transmission. All right? And, exactly. Uh, and so... Th- this idea that you could then, it would be just as much of a right to set a kid in there and tell him, well, you know, you don't have to wear the mask or you know, it, it doesn't work that way. You know, it doesn't work like that. It does, if you set him in there, he's transmitting the virus to these other kids, even if they're masked. And, and yeah. that's, you know, I just, God bless, man. It's so, and, it's so idiotic. And, and, and the child is also more susceptible too to, to, yeah. uh, receiving the virus, even though we know that uh, the science suggests that the real, the real protective measure comes from, you know, uh, the, you know, preventing the transmission to other people, but it also does to some degree protect you from being a receiver. So again, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's a, it's, 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 you know, I, I know that sounds harsh, but it's basically, Almost like saying, eh, just let some people die. Let some kids get infected. Let's roll the dice on our children. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's basically saying that I have the ability or that I have the right uh, to infect your kids and make them sick. You know, that's, that's mm-hmm. my right. If I, if I want to do that and, and there's nothing you can do to make me be responsible enough not to do that. 
That's that's basically what he said. I, I thought Anthony Daniels, um, House Minority Leader Anthony Daniels, had a, had a pretty good quote here. This is an AL.com story. Uh, I'd certainly think that Mr. Sorrell would spend most of his time on trying to do something that's going to actually focus on the health and safety of the state and listen to our doctors and their recommendations as opposed to trying to intervene and overreach into local school districts. Let districts make their own decisions, and certainly their decisions are going to be based on the health and wellness of our students, faculty, and staff. And, I, I you know, I couldn't agree with that anymore. Um, right, you know, and I, what I like about Anthony's statement is it makes clear that the point here really is not even to institute mask mandates. It's to preserve the right of the school systems and the individual schools to make that call for themselves. So why would you why would you try to preclude that, especially if you're interested in freedom? Then freedom means they ought to have the right to make a decision that they feel they need to make. Yeah. Uh, it just it's just dumb on all levels. Yeah. Well, and you know, listen. Would you expect the right wing note of the week to be anything other than dumb? You know, that's, that's, I think that's where we are, right? <laughs> All right. It's uh, like I promised you before, it's going to be the, one of the greatest shows you've ever heard, and I think we've delivered on that front. So uh, we're going we're gonna to get out of here before we, we screw it up. All right. This has right. uh, been Alabama Politics this week. Until next week, you guys be safe. Peace. <laughs>